Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back to May It Displease the Court. A podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been. But especially under the Trump administration. Amen to that. Uh, So in today's discussion about the plot to remake the judiciary and the laws that govern Americans and shape our way of life, we are focusing on how difficult it is to remove judges once they're on the bench. Now, just to uh, kind of set the stage, judges become judges in a, in a couple different ways. So some, and it varies by state, and they, because, you know, we have, uh, states have their own rules. So in some states like New York, judges are elected, and so the public chooses judges. Now, they don't have to be lawyers necessarily, although they have been working to change that. So in the town and village area, uh, you'll have judges that aren't necessarily lawyers, uh, although I believe going forward, they do need to have uh, they do need to have a law degree and be admitted in the in the courts that handle more serious or cases, cases with more consequences like county and Supreme Court, the appellate court levels, the, ju- the, att- the judges do need to be attorneys. Now, in other jurisdictions and other states, uh, judges are appointed So uh, the governing body will, usually the governor, will appoint judges to, uh, attorneys to be judges, although in every state they're not necessarily attorneys. So it's good to kind of look at the state, figure out, you know, what, what is the requirement of where I am? Now, once a person becomes a judge, it's quite difficult to get them not to be judges, you know, to have them removed or disciplined. And I think that, you know, in in large part, that makes a lot of sense because in every case that a judge rules on, there's going to be a, you know, somebody who wins, somebody who loses, you know, the party that's going to be unhappy with the result in every single case. That's, that's the judge's job. So if it was always this popularity contest, then, you know, we wouldn't ever be able to have judges make decisions. They would constantly be worried about, you know, what type of pressure they're going to receive. Now, that doesn't mean that they're immune from pressure. So, you know, we have to have a system that looks at judges and looks at their conduct and sees, you know, are they, you know, are they ethical? Are they, are they adhering to the law? You know, do they have the appropriate judicial temperament? And so we have bodies that kind of address complaints in those areas. So today on the pod, we have brought you Dr. Michael Moody and an associate professor at Chapman University, where he is uh, teaching in their leadership studies program. He is also an associate professor of social science at Brandman University. He earned his doctorate degree in education, and he also has a master's in communication and a bachelor's in communication and sociology. He wrote a graduate textbook titled Contemporary Leadership and Intercultural Competence that examines cultural comprehension application to organizations and intercultural competence measurement. Now, why is he here today? Well, he's here today because Governor Jerry Brown in California appointed him to an 11-member state commission on judicial performance in 2015. He was reappointed for a four-year term in 2017, and this commission investigates judicial misconduct and complaints and disciplines state judges. So welcome to the pod, Mike. Hi, Mary and Lee. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and um, speaking of which, we forgot to say who we are, Mary. Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) I'm like so in the groove about what we're going to talk about. I completely forgot that you might not know who I am. So I am Mary. I am an appellate attorney. I do uh, primarily assigned cases uh, out of New York, and I have spent most of my career uh, representing indigent clients doing defense, um, although I have also, I don't think I've said this before, I have also um, worked in family court um, handling child abuse and neglect cases for the government. Yes, and I am Lee Pierce. Um, she, they pronouns. I'm a professor of rhetoric in New York. 
Excellent. All right, so back to Mike. But Mike's the real star here. We just wanted to make sure he is everyone knew the who real we were. Star. Um, so, Mike, um, do you know how you got chosen to be part of this commission? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, Mary, around uh, 2015, I was actually in talks. Uh, Jerry Brown was the governor, of course, at the time. And I was in talks with uh, the, the Brown administration about serving on um, was actually a, a different commission uh, at, at the time. You know, every state has a very, very large number of these various state boards and state commissions that handle numerous tasks. You have everything from fair political practices commissions to community college boards, boards of education, etc. And uh, I was uh, in talks with the administration about uh, serving on uh, a different commission at the time. And then this came up. Uh, there was an opening on the State Judicial Performance Commission. I had known about it uh, simply from what I had read in the news. So whenever, for example, there's a public admonishment or public censure, or whenever a judge is removed from the bench, uh, that, uh, that, that results in a press release, that results in a news story. So my knowledge of the commission was really only what I had read in, um, in various news stories. And my initial response was, well, look, I'm not a judge and I'm not an attorney. But the feeling was, and given the fact that I'm an academic and, and you know, Lee, you certainly understand this as academics, what we do is we look at data, we look at evidence, we, we remove our, we try to go through all uh, processes necessary to remove our own personal biases and we make decisions. So because of that, uh, there was this feeling that I would possibly be a good fit, went through that interview process, and then was very honored to be appointed uh, originally in 2015, as you mentioned, and then uh, uh, for a four-year term in 2017. So I'm one of the six members of the commission per the state constitution. We are a majority public member commission. So uh, six of us, six out of the 11 of us are not legal experts. We come from different backgrounds. We have a mayor on the commission. We have uh, someone who was uh, an advisor to some key members of the legislature for many years on the commission, various people from backgrounds from throughout California. So, you know, I think you have some great um, credentials for being on this commission. One, you didn't seek it out. Uh, so this wasn't like an ambition of yours. Yeah, and that seems two, to be a theme really... of some of our interviews, which is like, oh, you've been looking for this kind of position? Well, I don't <laughs> know about that. Right, when you're judging other people. And also, you you're, you weren't connected to to the judicial system, so you don't really have any, you, you don't have a horse in the game, really, you know? Is that fair? Right. And of course, you know, upon the be, being appointed, it was a crash course in, in learning the judicial code of ethics. And uh, we did uh, various sit-ins in different courts and so on and so forth. But yes, off the bat, before actually being appointed, I was an outsider. Uh, I was somebody with limited experience in courts uh, and, and limited experience in front of judges. Now, does the governor appoint every member of the commission? No, the governor appoints four members of the 11-member commission. Uh, per the state constitution, the governor appoints two public members, so they're not attorneys and they're not judges, and the governor appoints two attorneys, and then the state Supreme Court appoints three individuals. Two of them are, uh, are uh, trial court judges, and one of them is an appellate court justice. And then the Senate Rules Committee appoints two public members, and the uh, Speaker of the State Assembly appoints two public members. So we have uh, basically a, a commission that is composed of people from various backgrounds, and there are four different bodies that do the appointing. Uh, and it's a, it, the, a full term is a four-year term. Okay. And how many times, uh, how often do you meet we meet seven times a year. Uh, before COVID, these were meetings that took place in San Francisco. So we uh, we meet throughout the year. They are they are two day meetings. We are exempt from the from the Public Records Act because the majority of work that we do is uh, is confidential. 
Uh, so the meetings that we have are, you know, they're closed door meeting, closed to the press, uh, closed to the public, unless there's a public hearing. And uh, before those meetings, it, it, it requires weeks of preparation. We have a staff of roughly 20 people, the majority of whom are attorneys. We have intake attorneys, investigative attorneys, uh, people who, who every single complaint that, uh, that um, is received is investigated. And our staff, our, our excellent staff, then creates a, a report. We review all of these reports and, and, and staff recommendations, and then we vote uh, during our two-day meetings seven times per year. And now, of course, that's being done virtually uh, for, until, you know, who knows when. But um, during this COVID pandemic, uh, we, we do these meetings virtually now. Okay, and so you, um, your the commission is 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 correct me if I'm wrong. Your commission is is volunteer based, but the staff attorneys are those full time paid positions. It is uh, the eleven commission members. Uh, it is a we're appointed, but yes, we are we're not uh, employees of the state. Uh, and then we have a staff. Our our commission has about a five million dollar budget uh, each year, and that uh, basically goes to pay the salaries of our staff. Uh, some uh, office staff, administrative staff, and then an executive director, a legal advisor, two commissioners, and and the attorneys. That's correct. I they're spoke, they're full time employees. I spoke to a uh, a friend of mine who is a staff attorney at the New York kind of you know version of this commission, and it sounds extremely similar. You know, so so he's a full time attorney and he does the investigation portion of that and then would present those uh, findings to the commission. So it seems like it functions in virtually the same manner, although I don't believe that they have um, these types of uh, non-lawyer members. So that's that's an interesting difference. Um, right. Yeah. California in 1961 became the first state in the United States to have this type of commission. And now every state and the District of Columbia has a similar type of board uh, or or body, uh, and they tend to vary in terms of what they do. So there are some that you know don't have the power, for example, to remove judges. Uh, there are others that are really serve in an advisory capacity, maybe to the governor uh, or to another entity. I believe there are 18 states that have commissions that can actually remove a judge from the bench. California is is one of them. But yes, they're all different in terms of their makeup, in terms of you know their, the state constitution uh, and, and who's authorized to be a member of those individual commissions. One thing we don't uh, do in California is we don't have suspension from the bench as a type of discipline that's possible. It's either a public censure and if a judge um, you know, commits an act that's more egregious, then we look at removal from the bench. Some states have suspension as as a level of discipline that can be administered. You know, it's, that's above a public censure, but just below uh, removal from the bench. We don't have that in California, so they vary. I believe Indiana has suspension as as an option, uh, but uh, yeah, they, they tend to they they all vary across the U.S. Right. Now let's talk about um, how you how you get complaints and um, you know what that you know what types of complaints come come in. So uh, how does that work? How does how are complaints filed against judges? Sure, in California we have around um, eighteen hundred fifty judges, in, uh, state judges in in the state of California, and then about another uh, two hundred and forty. Uh, commissioners and and referees. That's those are the authorized judicial positions in in the state of of California, and we receive on the, the best range is around eleven hundred to thirteen hundred complaints each year. So uh, overall, I believe the last time we ran the data on this, uh, it um, comes out to you know, and and some judges might receive multiple complaints, but every complaint that uh, we receive gets uh, investigated, gets addressed, and every complaint that we receive, there, there, there's actually uh, an, an attorney, a member of our staff, who looks into that particular uh, complaint. Uh, one challenge, of course, with that is there are a lot of misunderstandings among members of the public about what we do. Uh, so, for example, 
what we can't do is we can't uh, address or, or uh, discipline a judge if somebody disagrees with a decision that's rendered in, in, in a case. So I think perhaps there are some misunderstandings among members of the public that, you know, that's, a, that's what the appellate process is for. Uh, but um, overall, uh, around 1,100 to 1,300 complaints uh, are received by our commission each year. And there are roughly 2,000 uh, authorized judicial positions in, in the state. So and also, I'm sorry, Mary, go ahead. Nope. Uh, no, you finish. Also, if uh, let's say there is a case that maybe is, a, is in the news or a case that, you know, somebody reports on, uh, it, it doesn't, it's not as if it has to be done via a uh, complaint that is submitted to the commission. Uh, if, um, if, if, if there's something that's out there that's in the news and, 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 you know, that, that those also get investigated as well, uh, even if somebody doesn't actually submit a formal complaint. Okay. So if a judge, you know, is arrested for violating the law, you know, you may start, you may start a comp, you know, a comp, uh, another investigation that's also looking into the ju- judicial ethics portion of that. That is correct. That is correct. Yes. So what what are the types of uh, what are the types of complaints um, that you receive? They're varied. Uh, they're varied. We receive um, really a you know a very large number of complaints uh, from from different um, uh, you know from, from a variety of, of different individuals. Uh, the types of court cases that underlie complaints, uh, the majority of the time, I'd say. I think your most recent data, uh, just going off of memory, about forty percent of the complaints that we we receive are uh, related to uh, uh, judges in, uh, in in criminal courts, uh, or if let's say there's there's an individual who wants to uh, file a complaint uh, because of of an experience with a judge in a criminal case, around twenty percent, twenty two percent of the complaints uh, that we receive are related to general civil uh, court cases, about another 20% related to family law, and then a very small number, about 6% related to small claims and traffic court, and then you know, roughly 10-12% of the time there are complaints that are received in instances in which maybe it's not related to a court case uh, or it's perhaps you know, off-the-bench conduct. Uh, or something along those lines, but that's roughly the, the breakdown. A, a good forty percent related to uh, criminal court cases, uh, you, you know, is the underlying um, cause of, of these complaints, and then another forty percent or so of general civil and family law combined. Now, is it typically the the like the defendants or the litigants that are making the complaints, um, or do you find that it's mainly attorneys? Uh, most recent data, about ninety percent of the time, it is uh, comp- the complainants are litigants, or um, or yeah, uh, fa- you know, per- in a smaller number of times, maybe a family member or a friend. But yes, litigants comprise the vast majority of uh, complaints that we receive, and and, and that's that's information I can share. It's in our it's in our public report that's released each year. But yeah, sure. the vast majority of the time, it comes from litigants. Are you, do you accept anonymous complaints or do they have to be, do, do they have to, uh, you know, be from a person and like say notarized? We do accept anonymous complaints all the time. Okay. Uh, and anybody can submit a uh, complaint. Uh, but yes, frequently complaints are received that are anonymous. And uh, also when these investigations happen, we do ensure confidentiality. Uh, so the, um, uh, the complainant, the complaints, the investigations, the identity of the complainant are confidential uh, in, unless we get to formal proceedings and then uh, if, if the um, uh, – and, and then when we start getting into discovery and witness, witness statements, then you know that, uh, that doesn't apply there. But yes, uh, we do accept complaints, anonymous complaints, you know, wide variety of, of complaints from, um, from all, all sectors. Sure. Now, I have to say, uh, 
as an attorney, you know, I I've had instances where I probably should have filed a complaint. I can think of several off the top of my head that I'll share, but um, but I I didn't, and I think you know, I think that as an attorney, you know, you're the one who practices in court. If you're you know if you're an attorney that's in the courtroom all the time, I think you see things. But because you're in a courtroom and you're going to come back in front of this judge, you know, it's, you're, I, you know, I felt reluctant to bring up, you know, issues and, uh, you know, I try, I would try to deal with it with the judge as best I could. And, you know, when it, even, even in instances where I didn't, you know, get a resolution, I just kind of like moved on. And, and, you know, I think now, you know, looking at that, I think that probably wasn't a great idea. You know, for example, and maybe you can say, you know, you know, if I should have filed a complaint, I'll feel bad if I didn't. But, you know, I didn't. And I had as a criminal defense attorney in in New York, we have these things called pre-sentence investigations. And these are confidential reports that are um, that the the defendant has to uh, has to go to the probation department and the probation department meets with the defendant and then also does this kind of um, life study on the on the person and then gives this confidential report to the court and the prosecutor and the defense attorney get a copy the court gets a copy but it's not supposed to be this thing that you just talk about you kind of read it and then the judge takes it in consideration when passing sentence but there was this judge who would just read from it on the record in front of you know the entire courtroom which you know, includes everybody else who has a case and is just waiting for their case to be called. And, you know, he'd be like looking at it and he'd be like, note the, note the severe abuse, note the, the alcohol dependency, note this failed substance abuse, note the, note the incest, note the, and it was just like, excuse me, you know, this is, you know, I'd say, judge, please, this is a confidential report, you know, I'm asking you not to read from it. He would just continue to read from it, you know, and, and it was like this really, you know, here he's about to sentence my client, you know, how far do I, how far do I push this? Um, you know, but, you know, and looking back at it, I think I probably should have filed a complaint, but I felt at the time, like, well, if I file a complaint against a judge, you know, I'm putting my neck out there and I'm basically going to war with the judge. So I didn't do it. I don't know. I'll tell you this, Mary, um, you, you would find this interesting. Uh, out of the complaints that are received, you know, the, the vast majority, 90% come from litigants, et cetera. We uh, receive a very, very small percentage of complaints actually come from lawyers. I'd say about 4%, if, if I recall the, the latest, uh, latest report. However, uh, four, while 4% of the complaints come from lawyers, when they're in terms of cases in which discipline is imposed, it's about 21% of the cases in which discipline is imposed. So roughly a fifth of uh, instances in which discipline is imposed by our commission, uh, that, that comes as a result of the fact that it's a complaint submitted by an attorney, but attorney complaints only make up it, about 4%, uh, certainly less than 5% of the complaints that come in. Very small number of complaints, but if you compare that with the with the uh, proportion of uh, instances in which there's discipline, it's a, it's a higher number. And also a very small number of members of court staff submit complaints. Uh, uh, fellow judges and court staff submit complaints. Total number of complaints, about 2% of the time. And uh, on, on, however, about 11% of the instances in, in which we administer discipline, those are instances in which it comes from uh, fellow judges or court staff. So fellow judges, court staff, and attorneys submit a, a, a very small number of complaints compared to the the other um, uh, uh, complaints and um, each year. That's that's pretty consistent. Is there a type of is there a type of um, like a category of complaint like uh, that court, that attorneys and court staff or other judges you know like temperament or or like lacking judicial temperament for example or um i don't know doesn't obey the law some type or you know or doesn't follow the laws is there is there like a category of complaints that attorneys and court staff tend to or is it really kind of across the board yeah if you go back the past 10 years and you look at the most prevalent types of misconduct resulting in discipline 
going back the past past decade or so, uh, most prevalent is demeanor and decorum. Uh, those types of, of instances. That is, you know, th- those are the, the most common uh, reasons uh, that we tend to, uh, that, that uh, will result in discipline. And then uh, after that, uh, a, a distant second on that list would be on-bench abuse of authority mm-hmm. and also failure to disqualify or failure to disclose. That's, that's relatively common when we administer discipline, failure to ensure rights, uh, bias, uh, or the appearance of bias, uh, and also ex parte communications, and off-bench abuse of office or misuse of court information. Those would be the top six or seven. But number one, going back the last, last 10 years, if, if, if you were to look at all the our annual reports, it would be demeanor and decorum. That's the, the most prevalent type of misconduct that results in discipline from our commission. So what type of, uh, I mean, because I've experienced this, you know, witnessing this, you know, all the time, judges being, you know, shaming and, de- and demeaning, um, and lecturing defendants, you know, they, it's like open seasons, you know, to, to just unlo- unload verbally um, on, on criminal defendants, some judges. Um, but, you know, f- for example, what would be the what would be the penalty for that? Is that can I I've never I don't know of a judge. While I know well, I can think of a million examples. I don't know of a judge that was even censured, let alone removed for that type of behavior. So what is what would be like a typical response from a commission to a judge that you know is has temperament issues? It's a great question. We have a variety of different types of sanctions that we can impose as a commission if, if we determine uh, that, uh, that a judge has engaged in judicial misconduct. And, you know, first thing that our commission can do is close the case. And that happens, that actually happens a majority of the time. A lot of cases are, um, are closed. Uh, but the the lightest form of nothing happens, right? They, you're just like we're not gonna. There's no. There's not enough evidence, or that's just getting rid of the case. Correct. And and uh, part of the issue there, talking about lack of evidence, is in California when uh, our courts uh, were experiencing some uh, budget cuts uh, in in years past. Uh, we see, for example, a uh, you know a lot of times there isn't a, a transcript that's available. So if it's Kind of an instance where there there are allegations, but there's no transcript, a court reporter transcript to review. Uh, it can be very very difficult uh, for us to make any determination if there was misconduct and, and other factors as well. But the the types of discipline that we can impose, starting with the the quote unquote lightest form of discipline, uh, it, it's what we call an advisory letter. So an advisory letter is, uh, as it sounds, it's a it's a letter that a a judge will receive informing the judge that we found that they uh, had, um, uh, you know, committed uh, misconduct, and the, the advisory letter is the most common type of uh, of discipline that we do impose. Uh, we we administer, uh, you know, good number of advisory letters each year compared to the other sanctions that we impose. Uh, the advisory letter is not public. And it is not uh, released uh, to the press. And I think this is where it creates a little bit of a challenge because if somebody submits a complaint to the commission, uh, uh, if the commission therefore goes on and sanctions that particular judge, the complainant uh, will not even receive a a copy of the, the advisory letter and the complainant won't necessarily receive you know, any, any complaint will simply receive a letter saying that the appropriate action has been taken. So Mm -hmm. I think it leads to this perception among uh, the public uh, that uh, perhaps there might be some members of the public who, who, who might think that the commission is not doing enough. And that's the challenge because there's a lot of the discipline that we impose is private. It's confidential discipline. Uh, The, the judge knows. And if, uh, the the governor or if the president decides at some point that they want to appoint that judge or, or they want to look into appointing that particular judge to a higher bench, then there's a process that the governor or the president can go through to access uh, the judge's you know private uh, files. But other than that, it, it is really something that uh, that's private. It's confidential, and uh, the judge receives the advisory letter. That's the lowest form of discipline. 
uh, a lot of times demeanor cases, depending on how severe the case is, that falls under that advisory letter uh, realm. And it also depends if the judge has a history of, uh, of, of previous discipline. All, all of those factors are taken into account. Then it gets a little more serious. Uh, the next form of discipline is the private admonishment. So as that sounds, that's a serious uh, sanction that we impose. But again, it's done privately. Uh, so it's not released. It's not a, a news uh, story. It's not something that the public knows about. Then we have the public forms of discipline. Does the, does the complainant get to know about that? No, no. The complainant only knows when it is public. Uh, the complainant will receive a letter saying the appropriate action has been taken. Trust Some, them. I, I'm Trust paraphrasing. Them something. Yeah. Right. No, I get it. I get it. Right. Uh, but um, it, that may not be the exact verbiage, but something along, you know, something along those lines. A letter acknowledging. Uh, their complaint and that uh, the appropriate, but yeah, it, the, the complaint does not uh, find out when there's a private admonishment. Uh, when there's a, um, a a public admonishment, however, that's that's when it starts to get uh, get more severe. Uh, public admonishment. If you go to our commission's website, the listeners out there, it's uh, cjp.ca.gov. Uh, you can go back and read all of the public admonishments from years past. Uh, then we have the public censure, which is a very, very severe public admonishment, and then a removal from office uh, or involuntary retirement, which also sometimes happens. Uh, removal from office does not happen often, roughly three times every five years. Uh, but those, but going back to your original question, Mary, uh, demeanor and decorum—it depends. Uh, but a lot of times that falls under that advisory letter uh, area, unless it's a a repeated uh, instance. If maybe there's a judge with a, a long history uh, or multiple instances in which the commission has found that that person has engaged in misconduct, then the commission might uh, look at other forms, other sanctions. But usually it falls under that advisory letter realm. What is the difference between a public admonishment and a public censure? Because it seems, you know, not being not you know, really being familiar with California, I, that doesn't, what's the yeah, difference? Uh, they're, they're pretty similar. They're, they're, they're pretty similar. It's just uh, the public censure is considered uh, much more, it's considered more severe and it's considered. We're super, we're super mad at you for this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, they're similar in that they, they're, they're public forms of discipline. The judge is not removed from the bench. But public censure, maybe in layman's terms, the best way of putting it is it's just, um, look, you're, you're, you know, you, you've, the, uh, the discipline is severe, but not severe enough to warrant removal from the bench, but very severe. Well, you know, an example of a censure in New York was this, is this family court judge who, um, she was censured for, um, using her, and this was probably a, a court staff, I believe it was a court staff who made this complaint that that uh, this the, the personal secretary was being used, um, the court secretary was being used by the judge to pick up her dry cleaning, to babysit her kids, to do clerical work, write resumes for her husband, you know, and, uh, and she was an employee of the court. So, you know, she was, she was, uh, she said she didn't understand. I think the judge said she didn't understand the uh, the role of of her staff, and you know was very sorry. and And they and they censured her for that. But she's you know I uh, never didn't meet her until she was you know that had happened years ago, and she was still on the bench. So she she was not you know removed. She was just censured for that. And as far as I know, you know never engaged in any any type of behavior like that again. But you know. That's a pretty serious um, lapse in judgment, in my opinion. Um, you know, this, these are obviously court appointees. You're not paying their salary. I mean, in no other instance are you, you know, you, you got to hire a babysitter if you want somebody to watch your kids. You know, it, it, you know, it seems pretty amazing to me, you know, that you would think you could just use court staff for your own personal errands. So, you know, I'm very used to the court, the judges, uh, you know, going on long verbal lectures to my clients for 
say, theft charges about how, you know, they're using, the, you know, they're, they're putting their own selfish interests above those of society. And this is a crime of moral turpitude. And, you know, you know, you should learn from this and we're going to you're going to go to prison. You know, the really serious consequences. And, and, and I don't I struggle to see a difference um, between the mindset that would that would cause you to engage in this. And so, I, you know, it seems like all of these instances, you know, the judges are are, you know, getting these private letters, these private admonishments and even even something that's just a censure which is public, but it's still just, it's a public slap on the wrist. And, and, you know, and in other people, they get their liberty taken away, you know, so they lose everything. And uh, I don't know. I will tell you this, Mary, something I, a, a point I think you, you would find uh, noteworthy, just again, looking at the data. Uh, I do know uh, last time I, I looked at all of the various uh, reports that had come out. I do know that um, one thing you'll find you and Lee will find interesting is that when a judge in California does receive a public admonishment or a public censure, uh, with with a very very small number of exceptions, that judge will then draw a challenger when they are up for re-election. And because because you know a, a lot a lot of judge races, a good number of judges are are incumbent judges, they run for re-election, many run unopposed, but oftentimes when a judge receives a, you know, maybe 99% of the time, when a judge receives a public censure or a public admonishment, when that person is up for re-election, most of the time they receive a challenger, and uh, oftentimes just looking at the history, uh, the challenger wins. So that's one thing that I that you might you'd find you might find uh, noteworthy related to that. I mean, I do, but I think that that's that, you know that whole idea of electing judges is you know coming from New York. You know, I practice in New York, but I, I, now I'm in now I'm spending most of my time in California, and I vote for California judges. And I'm not part of the legal system here. I don't know these people, and I've been it's been I spend more time agonizing doing research online trying to figure out who these people are because I know how important it is. To elect people and the public just there isn't really information that is helpful to to um, to voters, you know, because I know because I'm looking for it. And and sometimes, uh, you know, people on Facebook will be like, they'll ask me, you know, and I'm like, well, this is kind of what I did or, or, you know, I'll go off of like what the L.A. Times is saying. And I know that's not great. And it's that's a big frustration, you know, and, and I think is a problem in, in, in electing judges because, you know, I would love to know. And and I guess maybe I should do even more research and, and actually kind of look at, and I never have looked at your commission to see whether or not they have um, discipline. I should, I you know, I think I will from now on. Um, well, I'll tell you this, Mary, just kind of switching hats and taking off my commission hat and, and wearing my, my social scientist hat. Tell me, tell me if, if you and Lee um, agree with this. I I believe that in the United States, there's a there's a vocal faction in the United States that argues that there's media bias, right? So there's this there's a very vo- vocal faction in in the U.S. that says the media is biased, and MSNBC and and all you know all the mainstream media they're in the pockets. They they hate uh, th- this you know particular president or so on and so forth. I do believe there's a media bias, but the media bias is overreporting of the actions of the presidency. Very, there's very little reporting of uh, you know what local governments are doing. You know, California, there's 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 uh, relatively uh, little reporting on the on the the what the state supreme court is doing. Uh, you know, we see high profile criminal cases that are reported on. But I do think that there's bias in the United States in terms of over-reporting on the actions of the president, where you have all of these other very, very powerful bodies that, frankly, people aren't really well informed on. The judiciary being one of them, uh, you know, Congress. I would argue everybody's local city council, their, their county boards of supervisors. Uh, there's there's very little reporting at that level. That's just me speaking. As a professor now, not necessarily on behalf of, of our commission, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I, I would concur that the media bias is toward attention, right? It's toward it's toward right. trending keywords, and and Trump is going to get thousands of more hits and clicks and links than something like a local judiciary, and that's a huge problem because they set the agenda for people's attention as much as they give people what people want, quote unquote. And so it, the more that the president becomes the end all be all of judicial and um, legislative action, the more that people think that's where all the action is. Certainly, certainly. Yet these are very powerful entities that have a lot of power over our lives. Uh, but yeah, just like you said, it, however, on the flip side, nobody really knows who a lot of these individuals are. So it can be problematic. Yeah. And I'm kind of interested, especially just because there's been all of this, um, uh, well, if, you know, one of the reasons we're looking at this podcast is because, you know, we're, we're concerned about corruption invading the, uh, the judiciary at a really unprecedented level. Now, there's some cases I do want to talk about corruption. It's not that corruption hasn't already been in the judiciary. Uh, it's a problem. Um, and, and if there is, you know, corruption, um, that is something that you would look into. Is that is that true? Correct. At the state level. So right, our jurisdiction, right, is is over uh, state state judges. That's correct. Right. Well, I know there was a case in Pennsylvania. There was a judge who got, I think he got 28 years in prison in, in what they call like a pay, uh, which is cash for kids, I think is what they, they mm-hmm. uh, said. Uh, because what would happen is he would just, he had this kickback scheme with a private prison system. Yeah, it was, uh, yes, um, Luzerne County Judge Mike Civarella Jr. He was convicted of taking a million dollars in bribes from uh, these private prison juvenile detention centers. And so he would just he would just extend kids sentences in detention without even bringing them into court. And so they had to get the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had to uh, get rid of 4,000 convictions between 2003 and 2008 because he violated uh, juveniles' constitutional rights, including their right to counsel and their right to enter uh, an intelligent plea. And his attorneys suggested, so he got 28 years, his attorneys suggested that that was not a reasonable sentence and that he'd already been punished enough. Uh, I don't know what punishment they're talking about. I guess maybe the public shame of having his uh, his uh, kickback scheme exposed. I'm I'm unclear as to what uh, public uh, as to what uh, sent um, you know what reason they were saying for that he shouldn't get 28 years. I think that's um, small, honestly, uh, for for what he did to all of those children. I mean, I think it's absolutely disgusting. So clearly corruption uh, does occur at the state level, um, maybe not to this extent in California, but, you know, that it would be something, you know, that you would investigate. Is that, uh, is it always a situation where your commission is reactive in the sense that it receives a complaint and then it investigates this complaint? Is it true that you don't take any proactive um, actions? That's an excellent question. Um, it's I've got I've got a two part answer to that. Uh, yeah, we are reactive in that we, uh, for example, yeah, every complaint that comes in, I mentioned earlier, we we investigate to to clear for that. We we take action on you know we take take action on every complaint that uh, that we receive, and then also if there are if there's something that comes comes our way, uh, is reported in the news, is is you know if, if a staff member is tipped. Then all of that falls under that. At the uh, but to to answer your question though, if the question is, you know, are we are, are our members out there, uh, kind of, uh, you know, sitting in in, in, in courtrooms and and uh, you know anonymously uh, tr- trying to take that type type of approach? The answer is no. But I will tell you one thing that I'm proud of here in California. Uh, is that we do have this uh, this, this mentorship program uh, among judges. So, for example, if there are judges who uh, perhaps there are some issues and we believe that a particular judge, you know, m- uh, might um, benefit from some mentoring or uh, might be able to avoid uh, perhaps coming before us in the future uh, if they have some mentoring, we have a 
a, a well-detailed mentorship program that we uh, started in Northern California, and we're now starting to roll out in Southern California. These aren't for serious corruption cases, such as the one that you, that you discussed, but in instances in which yeah, maybe, maybe there's a judge who perhaps um, uh, you know is it, it could could benefit from. Uh, some type of, of mentoring with a more veteran judge or, or with, with another individual. Uh, we, we, if, if the judge agrees, we assign mentors. We receive these mentorship reports over time. That's one way that we're, that we're proactive. Uh, but the short answer is uh, no. It's more a case of receiving complaints, uh, taking action on complaints, and then in instances when warranted, uh, doing, um, you know, formal proceedings in the most egregious cases, so on and so forth. Well, I think definitely in the, in the demeanor cases, I think a mentoring, um, a mentoring relationship could be really helpful right? You know, uh, in, in those situations. But I, you know, I think in looking at this Pennsylvania case, you know, it, I think it would have been helpful if the, to uncover that, you know, years earlier so that, you know, all these children didn't have to, you know, have their liberty taken away unconstitutionally, had there been some type of a financial disclosure reporting requirement for the judges. That is something that I would think a commission like yours, if that was, if that was something that existed and it sounds like it doesn't exist in California and maybe it doesn't exist anywhere, but you know, if they had to, to disclose and report um, their income, then you could see in their assets, then you could see if all of a sudden uh, they're getting, you know, and, and then you could look at that. Well, why, you know, why all of a sudden do you have an extra lake house? Uh, where did that money come from? You know? Yeah. And also, Mary, the other thing that we do um, that I forgot to mention is we do speak to judges at their new judge orientation. So the judges attend this new judge uh, orientation when they start their judicial positions. Uh, we speak to them, we try to be proactive in that regard. And then also we speak to various community groups. We have a pretty, before COVID, of course, COVID kind of changed, have changed things in terms of being able to give presentations. But uh, we um, we're out there in the community trying to educate the community, the public uh, about who we are, because a lot of people don't know that we exist, and a lot of people don't understand that there is this there is this body uh, that uh, exists basically to protect the public, basically uh, this body that that exists to uh, enforce rigorous standards of judicial conduct. So those are the types of ways we try to be proactive. But um, yeah, not quite to the extent that that you had um, you had mentioned. Sure. Well, and and just to you know, kind of sit, play off what you're saying here is is that judicial conduct is both on and off the bench. And I think something that people would find surprising is the level of sexual harassment that occurs uh, in the legal profession that occurs um, with judges. And you know, I I have to say I was much more vocal. Um, when I worked in a restaurant, when I worked in retail before, when I was in college about sexual harassment, I reported things, people got fired. But once I hit law school and I've had multiple instances of inappropriate touching, inappropriate comments uh, at private law firms, uh, I've had inappropriate comments from judges. Um, I did not, I did not report those the way I did before because I was worried about Hmm. my career. And I, and it, 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 you know, I, the law partner, like, you know, he, he, he went on to, that I didn't say anything about, he went on to, you know, be promoted and do things and bigger things in the community. I chose to speak to the, to a judge personally, because I also kind of liked him, um, you know, as a, as not liked him in that way, but liked him, you know, as a, I thought he was a pretty good judge. And Mm -hmm. so it was this, why did you do this? You know? And so I decided to speak to him personally about it. Um, I, so I didn't, you know, I didn't make any complaints, but I, I think, uh, in looking at some of the cases you had, there was a really, uh, really big case with a court of appeals judge. I think judge Johnson, um, that I was looking at on your website and, you know, he had allegations from, he was a court of appeals judge. Correct me if I get my facts wrong. Um, and another court of appeals judge made complaints against him. I mean, how and he was removed he was removed as a judge how bad is it that that you're sexually harassing another sitting court of appeals judge like how much entitlement do you feel 
And and to me, that's just endemic of of so many people not speaking up before it gets to that point. Um, yeah, and I think that that's I mean that's a really good point. And I, I mean again, it's kind of like that's the problem with data, right? It's you have this data about the number of reporting, and this is something we've known about sexual assault and sexual harassment cases forever. But to what degree is that data representative of what's happening, and to what degree is it? Overreporting and like now that things, I mean, with Me Too and everything, how many how many rise in reports have to do with trending? So I mean, this is always the tricky part about data interpretation. You know, I would just just speaking broadly uh, as a as, as a social scientist, I think in in many ways our country, particularly in recent years, Lee, you just brought up Me Too. We're um, you know, we're having a, a, a reckoning with uh, you know some some serious uh, issues with systematic. Um, uh, uh, systematic uh, gender discrimination, you know, this, this uh, society of, of, of patriarchy. And I think that um, what we see just in, in, you know, nationwide, and now we're seeing this, of course, in terms of racial injustice as well, uh, with the, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the protests of the last, last few months, uh, we see that I think in many ways our country is in, in the middle of this civil rights movement and a uh, movement that addresses inequities that is kind of reminiscent of what we saw in the late 1960s, though, though different at, at the same time. But yeah, it's structural and uh, it, it, it's real, but I think we're, we're instituting change little, little by little as a society. But yeah, you, you, know, you brought up some, some excellent points. Well, thank you, Mike, so much for your time and your experience and, and on, you know, just your insight into this area, especially uh, just for taking time out of your life to help make, you know, my profession um, more ethical and to hold people accountable and, uh, you know, to give them counsel on ways that they can improve um, for serving the public, because really that's the point. The point is to have uh, the best judges serving the serving the public and upholding the Constitution. So thank you for all that you do. And Mary and Lee, it's a pleasure and congratulations to you. I love this podcast mm-hmm. and uh, best wishes to both of you. And to the listeners out there, again, if you'd like to learn more about our commission and the work that we do, it's uh, http colon slash slash cjp.ca.gov. Uh, we're the California Commission on Judicial Performance. Uh, every state has a similar type of um, of body. And to listeners, you know, you, you understand that these are these are public agencies that exist. You have a lot of of uh, boards and, and public bodies that exist in your states that are there to protect you. So uh, it's good to familiarize yourself with them, to understand them, and uh, to serve as watchdogs as well to, to make sure that they're uh, that they're doing their jobs. So. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and best wishes to both of you. Okay. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, on. of course. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Till next time. Take care of yourselves. Bye. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Cause unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.